Hey, it's Guy here. So have you ever wondered what would happen if you told your coworkers exactly what you were thinking? What about your boss? I mean, lots of jobs encourage feedback, but what if your boss wanted you to tell him that he kind of sucks? Well, on today's episode, we explore honesty and openness in some unlikely places. It's called Transparency, and it originally aired in December of 2017. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Uh, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? <laughs> I've never known that. Delivered at TED conferences around the world. It's the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So imagine you've just gotten a new job, and on your first day, you head to a conference room for the new employee orientation. Good morning, everyone. There's bagels on the back table. Feel free to grab one. And everything seems pretty normal, except... Uh, before we get started, just uh, go around and introduce yourself, your new role here, and how much you get paid. Hi, everyone. My name is Amanda. I'll be working in accounting, and my salary is $52,000 a year. Hey, uh, I'm Jesse, project manager for IT, and 90K. Plus, I'll probably get a bonus. Hi, everyone. I'm Annie. I'm excited to be a sales associate, and I make $50,000. So I believe that inside of a company, everybody should know what everybody gets paid. Which is crazy. <laughs> you said it, not me. This is David Burkus. He's a professor who writes about leadership and business management. Yeah, um, but if you ask my five-year-old son, I write books, I give talks, and I take care of him. And David's known for his ideas about salary transparency in the workplace. Um, I mean, it sounds, you're right, it sounds crazy, and I thought that. When I started researching for my book, I thought I was just going to explain why it works in some companies, but it might not work in others. But the truth is, I think almost every company can inch closer to transparency. They probably can't go from secrecy to total transparency overnight, but we all have some steps we can take. On the show today, transparency. Ideas about how more honesty and openness could radically change our governments, our businesses, our institutions for the better, or maybe for the worse. So I have a, a question for you, David. Yeah. How much do you get paid? <laughs> so I have trouble with this question. I don't have a salary anymore. I can tell you the last salary I got was $64,000 a year. But I, I kind of in this writer life, I don't know how to answer the question because I piece it together from so many different places. Here's David Burkus's take from the TED stage. At work, how much do you think the person sitting in the cubicle or the desk next to you gets paid? Do you know? Should you know? Notice... It's a little uncomfortable for me to even ask you those questions. But admit it, you kind of want to know. Most of us are uncomfortable with the idea of broadcasting our salary. We're not supposed to tell our neighbors, and we're definitely not supposed to tell our office neighbors. The assumed reason is that if everybody knew what everybody got paid, then all hell would break loose. There'd be arguments, there'd be fights, there might even be a few people who quit. But what if secrecy is actually the reason for all that strife? And what would happen if we removed that secrecy? What if openness actually increased the sense of fairness and collaboration inside a company? What would happen if we had total pay transparency? For the past several years, I've been studying the corporate and entrepreneurial leaders who question the conventional wisdom about how to run a company. And the question of pay keeps coming up, and the answers keep surprising. It turns out that pay transparency, sharing salaries openly across a company, makes for a better workplace for both the employee and for the organization. Okay, so, so David, you've written about companies that, that have actually tried this in, in the real world. For instance, you looked at uh, this internet startup called Buffer. So can you tell me about them? Like, how did they handle salary transparency? 
So, so in Buffer's case, uh, it's a, a formula that they use that takes into account experience, the job that you're doing, the, the city that you live in, so cost of living adjustment, et cetera, their startups, so whether or not you chose to take equity or not. All of those things get plugged into a formula, and then that formula spits out what the salary is going to be. And so you know, okay, I need to do these things if I want to make that number higher. But doesn't I don't, so? What do they do? They have like a a whiteboard in their in their like I don't know their water cooler, like their lunchroom is like here is what everybody gets paid, and you can just see that. Uh, it's it's not a whiteboard. I think it's an internet, and everybody can look up the formula. They actually went uh, what I would call sort of super transparent and posted it on a blog on their website uh, at one point, so you could literally see here's what every single person in the company gets paid. They have a commitment to transparency in that regard that they share it openly, which I also don't advocate every company does. Well, how did that how did that benefit Buffer? Like how did that make it make life be easier or better for the employees or for the company? So what I think that transparency does is it says, here's what we value. Here's the formula that we're using to calculate that so you can see why. Here's how to make more money in the company. We're going to be open and honest about the differences between uh, people and the differences between salaries. And so when the, when the word of Buffer's commitment to transparency started spreading around, they got inundated with resumes and applications because I think in the back of a lot of people's minds, they don't actually trust that their employer is looking out for them. And they they often can sort of think, Maybe they're trying to screw me out of some money and Buffer can't do that. They've handcuffed themselves to doing what's right by their employees because they're transparent about it. Keeping salaries secret leads to what economists call information asymmetry. This is a situation where in a negotiation, one party has loads more information than the other. And in hiring or promotion or annual raise discussions, an employer can use that secrecy to save a lot of money. Imagine how much better you could negotiate for a raise if you knew everybody's salary. Economists warn that information asymmetry can cause markets to go awry. In fact, they even warn that information asymmetry can lead to a total market failure. And I think we're almost there. And here's why. First, most employees have no idea how their pay compares to their peers. In a 2015 survey of 70,000 employees, two-thirds of everyone who's paid at the market rate said that they felt they were underpaid. And of everybody who felt that they were underpaid, 60% said that they intended to quit, regardless of where they were, underpaid, overpaid, or right at the market rate. Next, information asymmetry, pay secrecy, makes it easier to ignore the discrimination that's already present in the market today. In a 2011 report from the Institute for Women's Policy Research, the gender wage gap between men and women was 23%. This is where that 77 cents on the dollar comes from. But in the federal government, where salaries are pinned to certain levels and everybody knows what those levels are, the gender wage gap shrinks to 11%. And this is before controlling for any of the factors that economists argue over whether or not to control for. If we really want to close the gender wage gap, maybe we should start by opening up the payroll. Okay, so I want to I want to ask you first about this idea of information asymmetry because basically your argument is that without pay transparency, the the power dynamic is heavily weighted in favor of the employer, right? Because they've got more information. Yeah, exactly. So and and they they have, I mean, it's sort of like in a, it used to be this way in buying cars, and that's why we were all sort of so worried. But now in an age of transparency of information, you can know everything about whether it's a new or used car and know what price in that little back and forth negotiation you should offer. That wasn't happening in job interviews. And in fact, what I think is interesting is in the past uh, 18 months or so, several states have actually passed state laws that forbid companies from asking prospective hires what your salary in your previous job was. They're trying to actually reduce the information asymmetry. Yeah, because if they ask you that, you tell them the truth. In their minds, they might be thinking, oh, that's awesome. That's like 20% less than we pay. Yeah, no, when, when I was teaching full-time, I used to tell my students there's, there's only three possible answers to that question, and two of them are bad news. You either made more, and so they discount you because they don't have the money to afford you. You made the same, and that's good because there's a match. Or you made under what they were expecting, and that's bad because now you're not going to get paid the full potential of what you should have. So I guess if you're asked the question by a prospective employer of, like, what do you make, it's probably in your interest to kind of lie, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm, I'm not sure that lying solves it because then the information asymmetry goes the other way, right? You, you know that you're lying. But most of the HR, uh, chief HR officers and people that I talk to, they want a pay system that's fair. 
And they also want people to believe that it's fair. So do you think like do you think that there was pay transparency, it would lead to a more just and equitable, you know, country, society, community environment? I mean, I think inside of organizations, it would lead to a, a more just organization. And truthfully, I think most research from motivation science and the experiments of companies are, are showing that employees tend to be happier and more motivated when they know that the system is fair because they can see it. Like I said earlier, it's sort of a handcuff to the idea of fairness and transparency because you're saying, here's what it is. And if you find a problem with it, now we have to change it because it's public. But then the other thing is it's a very public signal that we we care about this. And actually, Buffer is a really good example of this. When they first went live with the formula, in talking about what everybody's salary was, they found out that they had a gender wage gap, but they could take steps to fix the formula to fix that. And um, it turned out to be for a really simple reason. Basically, men were lying about how much experience they had and women were telling the truth. But they could fix that in the way that they calculated the formula and reduce it. Now, I realize that letting people know what you make might feel uncomfortable. But isn't it less uncomfortable than always wondering if you're being discriminated against? Openness remains the best way to ensure fairness. And pay transparency does that. And in study after study, when people know how they're being paid and how that pay compares to their peers, they're more likely to work hard to improve their performance, they're more likely to be engaged, and they're less likely to quit. Pay transparency takes a lot of forms. It's not one size fits all. Some post their salaries for all to see, some only keep it inside the company. Some post the formula for calculating pay, and others post the pay levels and affix everybody to that level. But we can all take greater steps towards pay transparency. For those of you that have the authority to move forward towards transparency, it's time to move forward. And for those of you that don't have that authority, it's time to stand up for your right to. I mean, our culture would have to radically change for for this to be possible, right? I mean, don't you think that secrecy around pay is just like ingrained in our culture? I mean, I, I think it is. I mean, the thing that I find fascinating is that in 2017, 2018, people are more comfortable talking about their sex lives, which used to be even more taboo than salaries, right? They're happy to talk about everything until it comes time to, here's what, what I get paid. And I think that's for two reasons. One, we're an individualistic society, so we tend to think that's my private arrangement with the employer. Um, the other thing is I think we have this huge problem where we think that what our salary is is what we're worth to the world, which is super wrong on so many levels. Um, so it, it, clearly there's a cultural element to what is private, et cetera. The, the other thing is that this is relatively new to U.S. history too. So when the first income taxes were leveled, for example, one of the ways that they enforced that is they kept a roster at the county courthouse of here's what people claimed and what they said they earned and then what they owed in income taxes. And you could go look that up. Up. If your neighbor with a different farm looked like they were doing really well, you could go, hmm, well, I wonder. And you could go look it up. And society-wise as a whole, if everybody could look up everybody's salary uh, you know, on the IRS website, I don't think I advocate for that. But uh, beyond that, I mean, uh, inside of organizations, I, more transparency appears to be a better thing. David Burkus, he's a writer, speaker, and associate professor at the Business School at Oral Roberts University in Oklahoma. You can see his entire talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about transparency, and in a moment, an even more radical idea about transparency at work. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone, just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Imagine how it feels to have an award-winning team of mortgage experts make the home buying process smoother for you. With a history of industry-leading online lending technology, Rocket Mortgage is changing the game. Visit rocketmortgage.com ideas. Jessica? Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states. NMLSconsumeraccess.org number 3030. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Push button, get mortgage. This next message comes from NPR sponsor TIAA, committed to the idea that while most things in life run out, from clean shirts in the morning to a favorite dessert at night, lifetime income and retirement shouldn't. Learn more at TIAA.org slash never run out. You know Jonathan Van Ness as a fabulous cast member of Netflix's Queer Eye. 
But as a kid, I was basically just like a geode obsessed, stamp collecting, rock collecting, obsessed with gymnastics. Jonathan Venes on his transformation and his new book. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about transparency. So just think about your bosses for a second. I'm going to need you to go ahead and come in tomorrow. Have you ever wanted to tell them exactly what you think? I'm also going to need you to go ahead and come in on Sunday, too. To let them know all the ways they're doing it wrong. Yeah. That they're being jerks. Yes. Or that they're just not very good at their jobs. It's great. This is Ray Dalio. I'm Ray Dalio. I'm the founder of Bridgewater Associates uh, and now currently uh, chairman and chief investment officer. So Ray's company is the largest hedge fund in the world. It manages more than $100 billion in assets. And Ray credits a big part of that financial success with creating a certain kind of culture at work, a culture he believes could help other companies succeed too. And it's something Ray calls radical transparency. That we want an idea meritocracy, in other words, a place where the best ideas win out. The ability to see things for oneself, the ability of people to see that thing happening so that they can form their own opinions about it. So Ray believes that even the most junior level employees, like people straight out of college, can tell him to his face that basically he sucks. Yep. And not only is that encouraged, it's kind of mandatory. I want to make the best decisions possible. Hmm. And I know that I don't have all the answers in my, you know, my head. And I also know that the relationships that I, with the people I'm dealing with are, are really important. I think one of the greatest tragedies of man is that people have opinions in their heads that they act on that are wrong. How do you know that wrong person isn't you? And so if we put it out there, and then we have a thoughtful disagreement process, aren't we going to be better off? Here's Ray Dalio on the TED stage. Just to give you an example, this is an email from Jim Haskell, who uh, somebody works for me, and uh, this was available to everybody in the company. Ray, you ha deserve a D minus for your performance today in the meeting. You did not prepare it all well because there was no way you could have been that disorganized. Isn't that great? <laughs> That's great. It's great because, first of all, I needed feedback like that. I need feedback like that. And it's great because if I don't let Jim and people like Jim to express their points of view, our relationship wouldn't be the same. And if I didn't make that public for everybody to see, we wouldn't have an idea of meritocracy. Okay, so let's let's just go over a couple of things that happen at Bridgewater. Uh, all meetings are videotaped, right? Some case video, some case audio, audio. and it's virtually all. Nothing is 100%. Right. But uh, most, there might be propriety. Yeah. But most things are recorded uh -huh. so that people could see things for themselves. Okay, so most things are recorded. Uh, basically, every employee is subject to a 360-degree review like every day, right? Yeah, everybody is getting the way it works is... In order to have an idea of meritocracy, you're also trying to understand the merit of each person's thinking. And different people have different strengths and weaknesses. And you also want to collect everybody's thinking. So if you imagine you're going into a meeting, what it is is what people are thinking um, about how people are doing different things and what's going on is downloaded you know, in almost a continuous fashion through meetings and interactions. Into an app. People are constantly, into an app. I constantly inputting data points into an app about ideas that other people raise. That's right. In order to give you a glimmer into what this looks like, I'd like to take you into a meeting and introduce you to a tool of ours called the Dot Collector that helps us do this. A week after the U.S. election, our research team held a meeting to discuss what a Trump presidency would mean for the U.S. economy. Naturally, people had different opinions on the matter and how we were approaching the discussion. The Dot Collector collects these views. It has a list of a few dozen attributes, so whenever somebody thinks something about another person's thinking, 
it's easy for them to convey their assessment. They simply note the attribute and provide a rating from 1 to 10. For example, as the meeting began, a researcher named Jen rated me a 3, in other words, badly, <laughs> for not showing a good balance of open-mindedness and assertiveness. Others in the room have different opinions. That's normal. This tool helps people both express their opinions and then separate themselves from their opinions to see things from a higher level. When Jen and others shift their attentions from inputting their own opinions to looking down on the whole screen, their perspective changes. They see their own opinions as just one of many and naturally start asking themselves, how do I know my opinion is right? So, okay, so um, this is very complicated for, as you know, for 99% of people to understand because it's a, it is a radical idea. So, so I want to just break it down a little bit. Essentially, all 1,500 employees at Bridgewater have access to see how any other employee has been evaluated at any given time by other employees? Yep. And why wouldn't wow. you do that? It sounds horrible, right? It sounds why? absolutely you, horrible. You know, when we, when we examined... When we examined the difficulties people have, they break into two groups. Uh, somewhere between, I would say, probably a third in the first 18 months, they say it's not for, and they, uh, and and, they leave, and, they leave. Okay. And, and, and we agree that it's not for. But right. we find it takes about 18 months to get used to, and when people are doing it, they can't work anywhere else. Okay, I'm going to be radically transparent with you because I love that you have this big idea and you put it out there. I'm not sold on it at all. Like, I am seeking to be convinced. And this interview is one of those um, seeking moments, but I am still not convinced. I want to be oh, transparent with you about that. No, I, I, like even the fact that you feel like you have to be compelled to say that somehow almost implies like there's some problem that we, ha we don't we have a, di a disagreement, we haven't worked it out. There's no problem. Don't apologize. You don't have yeah, to unveil no, 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 that. No, 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 not, it's not great. apology. Okay, so, all right, so you have this radical transparency. But it seems like radical transparency can only work if people are given a lot of room to fail, that, that they work in an environment where they're not afraid of being fired because of the way they're being evaluated all the time. Well, I believe failure is an important step in the learning process. How much? Look, you know, I guess 80% of it, if you ask how no, much. No, but I mean, because, how much can you fail, right? Well, what you can do is you can scratch the car, but you can't total the car. In other words, that experimentation of being able to do things and fail, failing produces most of the learning. Because, look, mm. if you're not failing, then you're successful already. Learning's got to come from failing to do something wrong and then analyzing how you failed. I think it's to know how to struggle and fail well is an important thing. And to do that openly rather than to be stuck within your head and you're saying that these mistakes. So I'm asking you, so let's go back to yeah. the problem. Sure. What is the problem with this way of operating intellectually? Tell me the intellectual problem. I hear that emotionally it's challenging, but tell me what the intellectual problem is. But I don't think they're mutually exclusive, right? I think they're connected. I mean, humans aren't these bodies of meat. I mean, we, we intertwine no. the intellectual and the emotional all the time. I'm asking you, give me an example of what is wrong with that problem. We all, as human beings, have to reconcile the emotional and the intellectual in order to make the decision. And how we make that decision is important. So I think emotions are very important. Inspiration, yeah, love, all those sure. things. And they're together. But the reconciliation so they line up so that we do the things in our interest isn't important. And I'm saying we have better relationships as well as better outcomes by operating this. Do you acknowledge that your idea is pretty radical? Yeah, I acknowledge that. Do you, and that's you, why uh, it's yeah. what's differentiated us. Yeah. It's not for right. everybody. It's like if you want to be a Navy SEALs, uh, okay, the Navy SEALs, it's tough. And so the first thing you have to do is, it's kind of an, like an intellectual Navy SEALs. There's, they produce excellent results and they have an excellent community. Right. So I got it. Not everybody wants to be this way. But other people would say, wow, it's invaluable. So I'm saying everybody should consider it. Decide in what degree you want it. Don't make it a black and white thing. I'm not saying everybody should do everything that we're doing. Just find the degree for yourself and ask yourself conceptually, 
is it going to be better off or not? Ray Dalio, he's the founder of the hedge fund Bridgewater Associates and author of the book Principles, Life and Work. You can see his full talk at TED.com. So if you were given a choice, a binary choice between too much transparency or secrecy, what would you pick? If we're talking about the government that is supposed to work by and for the people, um, I would absolutely take too much transparency. Always. Um, In almost all cases. This is Trevor Tim. I'm the executive director of Freedom of the Press Foundation. Which advocates for openness and transparency in government. You know, when we're talking about government transparency, what that means is that the people should know what the government is doing, um, whether that is the policies they're carrying out uh, in the executive branch, the laws that are being debated and discussed in Congress, or uh, the court system. But Trevor says, and this probably won't come as a shock, that the government often falls way too short. What we have seen over the past six or seven decades is way too much secrecy, where everything is considered classified by the government that pertains to foreign policy or national security. And it allows the government to break laws, waste billions of dollars, uh, abuse the system, and facilitates corruption. And transparency is a very important tool to prevent those types of things. The problem, of course, is that sometimes when people like whistleblowers or journalists try to hold the government accountable, they're met with intense resistance. Trevor gave one of those examples on the TED stage. So this is James Risen. You may know him as the Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter for The New York Times. Long before anybody knew Edward Snowden's name, Risen wrote a book in which he famously exposed that the NSA was illegally wiretapping the phone calls of Americans. But it's another chapter in that book that may have an even more lasting impact. In it, he describes a catastrophic U.S. intelligence operation in which the CIA quite literally handed over blueprints of a nuclear bomb to Iran. If that sounds crazy, go read it. It's an incredible story. So, all right, let's talk about this James Risen story. So he um, has this book, and it comes out, and, and it reveals that uh, that the CIA basically handed over blueprints to build a, a a bomb, the bomb, to Iran. Is that what happened, basically? Yeah, it's basically he was writing about a spectacularly botched CIA operation. Um, this is in the early 2000s, uh, where the CIA was trying to trick Iran into building a fake nuclear weapon. And so they uh, got blueprints for a nuclear bomb, made some small alterations to them that would essentially make it inoperable, and attempted to hand them over to the Iranian government. Now, the uh, Iranian government allegedly uh, immediately realized the fake parts of the diagram, but also understood that they handed over a largely accurate blueprint of a a nuclear bomb as well. And so it was really a story about the CIA essentially handing, you know, incredibly sensitive material, the most sensitive you could possibly imagine, to a country which they were trying to prevent from getting a bomb and they were actually helping them along. This is classified information that he, he, he gets. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the information that Ryzen uh, publishes in the story, I think anybody in the government would agree, was highly classified. You know, this was a um, covert operation by the CIA. Um, it's also important to realize that there is a huge public interest to the story, too. But there's no way the government is, is happy he published this classified information. No, they are not. For nearly a decade afterwards, Ryzen was the subject of a U.S. government investigation in which prosecutors demanded that he testify against one of his alleged sources. And along the way, it became the face for the U.S. government's recent pattern of prosecuting whistleblowers and spying on journalists. You see, under the First Amendment, the press has the right to publish secret information in the public interest. But it's impossible to exercise that right if the media can't also gather that news and protect the identities of the brave men and women who get it to them. So when the government came knocking, Risen did what many brave reporters have done before him. He refused and said he'd rather go to jail. So from 2007 to 2015, 
Risen lived under the specter of going to federal prison. So what ended up happening to him? Uh, they, after the seven-year legal battle, they just dropped the subpoena entirely. Why? Well, you know, over the last decade, while this subpoena and legal battle was going on, uh, the U.S. government realized that to find reporter sources, they actually didn't need the reporters to testify against them anymore. Uh, you know, with the explosion of cell phones and email and the internet, uh, the government realized that it had uh, increased surveillance capabilities and it could go to a uh, company like Google or Verizon or AT&T or Facebook and gather all sorts of data on who sources are talking to, who reporters are talking to, and they can take this information to court and get a conviction against a source um, without having the reporter uh, testify at all. And this is exactly what happened in James Risen's case. They were able to get Risen's phone records, his email records, his travel records. And Risen did not know this until uh, many years later. And they were able to use this information to build a circumstantial case against James Risen's alleged source, who is a former CIA officer named Jeffrey Sterling. And once uh, the trial began, after the subpoena was dropped, Mr. Sterling was quickly convicted. So, so let's say we personally like that James Risen exposes information and, and think it's important, right? How do we know what should be secret and what shouldn't be secret? And, and who decides that? Well, I think this is a great question because um, I think that people have a misconception uh, about what happens when journalists or reporters or newspapers uh, publish newsworthy stories that the government thinks is, is classified. You know, number one, it is not just one single source who is deciding what should go in the New York Times uh, and what shouldn't. You know, reporters are, are when they publish these types of stories, often uh, have to have multiple sources to make sure that things are accurate. Uh, they have experienced national security teams inside these newspapers uh, made up of editors, reporters, and lawyers who look at this information from the perspective of, okay, what is the public interest of the story? And what is the potential damage to national security? And can we weigh those two ideas against each other and see if this information is, is far more in the public interest then could potentially damage national security. But when the government says to a newspaper virtually every time you shouldn't publish the story because you're going to have blood on your hands, it becomes a boy who cries wolf, uh, where the government is saying that everything that they say is classified is, is uh, definitely a danger to society and they can never know it. Uh, and then when a newspaper publishes it, it becomes clear that there was no damage and that this was in the public interest. Uh, and this happens over and over again. And you quickly start to realize the classification system is broken. In just a moment, more from Trevor Tim on whether there should be a limit to government transparency. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone, just a quick thanks to our sponsor, The Financial Times. In a world of innovation and fragmentation, the FT not only helps you to thrive in business, it looks at topics such as whether Silicon Valley is falling short on climate change and whether the U.S., EU, or China will be writing the new rules of tech. The world is changing fast. The Financial Times wants you to keep up with the new agenda. Visit FT.com to learn more. movies are about to heat up and Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR has you covered. We'll tell you whether some of the big films on the way are as good as you're hoping they are, and we'll help build a list of gems you can uncover for yourself. Start your Oscars prep early with Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. Listen and subscribe now. Now. 
It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about transparency. And we were just hearing from free speech advocate Trevor Tim, who told the story of New York Times reporter James Risen, who exposed a botched CIA operation. Now, for nearly a decade, Risen faced the threat of prison until the government dropped its legal battle against him. But since then, much bigger secrets have been exposed, most famously by Edward Snowden. You know, many people assume that, I think, who, who didn't follow the story closely, that Edward Snowden took a lot of documents from the NSA and just posted them on the Internet right. himself. Right. Uh, but that's actually not what happened. You know, he actually purposely went to experienced national security reporters at the Washington Post and The Guardian um, so that it wasn't just him deciding. And these newspapers combed through these documents and, and published many important stories in the public interest that actually won both the newspapers the Pulitzer Prize. Yet there was also a lot of material that, that got held back. And I think that, you know, the Snowden disclosures were an important example about how the First Amendment can act as the safety valve for democracy when our other institutions fail to uphold their duties. Okay, so Trevor, you just made a very compelling case, you know, defending James Risen and, and Edward Snowden, but but what about something like WikiLeaks, you know, publicizing the personal emails of, of Hillary Clinton's campaign manager, John Podesta? And because so many of those emails had nothing to do with national security. They weren't in the public interest. I mean, do you think that kind of transparency is okay or or is that an abuse of this idea? Well, I certainly think that we have seen um, a lot of cases over the past uh, three or four years where uh, people are having their emails hacked left and right. They're showing up on the internet. And certainly not all of those are in the public interest. Um, but I, you know, I do think it is a more complicated question than just should we have seen John Podesta's emails or should we not? You know, first of all, the person or, or group that hacked uh, John Podesta certainly uh, committed a crime, and certainly you can make the argument that um, a lot of those emails shouldn't have been published because they they didn't contain newsworthy information. But it is a tenet of journalism uh, that. You know, when you have some of the most powerful people in the world where you have information that pertains to the public interest, often the right answer is to publish that information. But so much of what they published about John Podesta was was basically irrelevant personal stuff. Like it had nothing to do with, with the campaign or with national security. So why release it? Well, you know, I think there there is a difference between government transparency, um, transparency of elected officials, uh, and the privacy of private citizens who um, are, number one, not public figures, and, and number two, um, should have robust privacy rights. Um, you know, I just want to make clear, I'm not arguing that uh, everybody's email should be published on the internet. In fact, uh, the opposite. I'm a, I'm a privacy activist. But it is a tough decision that journalists have to make when they are presented with uh, compelling information that would be considered newsworthy by millions and millions of people in the middle of an election campaign. And for them to decide not to publish could have ramifications as well. And I think all in all, while there certainly are trade-offs, um, that that is a good thing that they are now much more aggressive about reporting on public figures. And I'm certainly not arguing um, that, you know, it's 100% good um, to be transparent and 100% bad to have total secrecy. Uh, what we're arguing for is more transparency than there is now. And often these trade-offs, in my mind, can be worth it. That's Trevor Tim. He is the executive director of the Freedom of the Press Foundation. You can see his full talk at TED.com. Have you ever been in a situation where you are uh, you're apologizing on behalf of your hospital? Yes, that's a uh, that's a core part of my job. Wow! I told somebody the other day that I'm a professional apologizer. Kind of what I do. This is Leilani Schweitzer, and her job is all about 
transparency. I'm the assistant vice president for communication and resolution at Stanford Hospital. Uh, and what does that what does that mean? So that means that if you or your family member have something unexpected happen in the hospital, chances are I'm going to be talking to you. So I'm going to explain our process of what we want to figure out, how we want to come to understand what happened, what we want to learn. And if we determine it could have been prevented, we're going to apologize and we are going to do our best to make amends for what happened. And having a job like that, having a hospital even create a position like the one Leilani has, is actually pretty rare because hospitals aren't exactly the most transparent places. I think that's a fair statement, yes. Because my role is unique, um, people hear about it. And I've had people from hospitals around the country who will call me and they'll say things like, I don't know what happened to my husband during the operation and no one will talk to me. And it really speaks to the voice of people who are looking to find answers. And they need that to heal. They really do. Whenever something unexpected happens to any of us, we, we, wanna, we want to understand what it was. And Leilani started doing this kind of work at Stanford Hospital after something tragic happened to her there. Leilani Schweitzer tells her story from the TED stage. The nurse grabbed the recliner and jerked me awake. I heard code blue and the room filled with people. In that instant, I knew he was gone. The doctor's words attempted optimism, but their faces betrayed them. My 20-month-old son had just died in one of the country's leading hospitals. That night, when he had been admitted to the hospital, white circles with wires were stuck onto Gabriel's bare little chest to monitor his breathing and heartbeat. Every time he made the slightest little wiggle, the alarms would go off, and they're loud. Every time we would almost be asleep, the racket and worry would start all over again. We'd already spent sleepless days and nights in my local hospital where he had been misdiagnosed again and again. But now we were in a university hospital for children. Finally, here, I felt safe and very tired. And I'm sure the nurse could see how tired I was and she wanted to take care of me too. So she did the logical thing. She turned off the alarms on the machine next to his bed. And I thanked her when she did it. I was so grateful for the prospect of silence and sleep. Later, doctors and administrators from the hospital would explain that actually, unknowingly, she had done a lot more. She hadn't just turned the racket off in the room. She turned off all of the alarms everywhere, in his room, at the nurse's station and on her pager. Later, the manufacturers of the monitors would explain they didn't think anyone would go through the trouble of seven screens to turn off all of the alarms. So they didn't include a failsafe to stop her. They were wrong. So when Gabriel's heart stopped beating, there was no sound. Just quiet. Nothing woke me until several minutes had passed and I was being jerked awake, and the room filled with people and panic. Wow. Did you, in, in those moments, and, and then the hours and, and the days that passed, was there, was there anyone who was answering your questions, who was you know, explaining what was going on to you? Yes. So now, now I recognize that the way Stanford treated me was really exceptional. But in that time, I just had no awareness of that. I mean, after, after Gabriel died, my, my sphere of what I could grasp was really quite small. When I made a call, someone always answered and told me what was happening. The chief nursing officer and then also... 
Gabriel's neurosurgeon, Dr. Edwards, he answered my calls. I never waited for more than a couple hours to have an email response. I didn't realize that I was something most hospitals would be afraid of. I thought that they were taking care of me. So so I know you said your experience with Stanford was was an exception, but how do I mean how do hospitals n- normally respond to, to these kinds of situations? Oh, they circle the wagons. They put their heads down and now I know that Many parents, if they lost a child the way that I did, they most likely would not get that dignity and respect of being told what happened to them. And it's it's profoundly damaging. And that is something that I don't want people to have to go through. It's It's a difficult experience for patients and families to go through. And it also really makes it more difficult to to make people safer, to learn from what happened and to make sure that it doesn't happen again. Transparency in medicine can help heal our medical system. By being open and honest when the unexpected happens, we can learn from our mistakes. Unfortunately, hospital administrators don't tend to respond to medical errors with openness and transparency. They react with a legal version of fight or flight, deny and defend. Keep your head down, shut up, and let the lawyers handle everything. It would have been easy for the university hospital administrators to blame the nurse, fire her, and assume the problem had been solved because the bad apple was gone. It would have been typical deny and defend behavior for them to ignore my questions, to go silent, and hope I couldn't gather my thoughts enough to file a lawsuit. It would have been a safe bet. But they didn't do that. They didn't prey on my vulnerability. Instead, They investigated, they explained, took responsibility, and apologized. It made all of the difference. After the university hospital investigated Gabriel's death and the weakness in the monitors was discovered, all other hospitals using the same equipment were alerted to the vulnerability. Maybe that helped someone else. I will never know. But it still comforts me now. Gabriel was treated at two different hospitals. He died because of mistakes made at both of them, accidents that no one wanted to have happen. But how they responded to those mistakes was very deliberate. Both had the opportunity to learn from my son's death and be transparent, but only one did. The university hospital didn't hide behind legal maneuvers and dismiss me but the local hospital ignored me. By going silent, they didn't just humiliate me, they denied Gabriel his dignity. And after more than eight years, that wound is very far from healing. Why do you think the local hospital acted acted that way? I mean, why do hospitals just shut down and go into this like deny and defend mode? You know, instead of just talking to people like human beings. I think there's a few reasons. Um, I don't think any of us like to uh, admit when we've done something wrong. Uh, It can be far more difficult to admit that you've hurt somebody. Um, that that's a really difficult component. There's there's shame. There's guilt that's involved. uh, There's fear. And maybe they have a culture that discourages people from speaking up. I think most hospitals probably do. So there's there's many layers to overcome to be more transparent. It's it's far easier to stay in that rut of deny and defend than it is to get out and pull back the curtains and let the sunshine in. Um, this is why people go to lawyers is because they feel that they don't have any other option. Hmm. People don't hire lawyers because it's an easy or fun thing to do. They do it out of out of desperation. Uh, at a certain point, I mean, some of these hospitals, you know, they have to realize that being more transparent can not only save them from lawsuits, but you know, like you said, it can it can help heal people who are involved, right? 
oh, I think it does. So I've been in many meetings where we explain to patients and families what has happened. And those are difficult things to be part of, but it's a front row seat to the human condition. And I've seen an explanation move the guilt off of a mother's face. I mean, that is the power. I I have seen parents walk into a meeting with a physician where no one can lift their heads to look at each other. Mm. And by the end of that meeting, they are embracing. Mm. And it is remarkable what understanding can do for people. And and you you work at Stanford. I mean, you work at the hospital where Gabriel died. I do. Mm-hmm. Wow. I don't work physically in the building, though I am in there frequently, but this is the place where I do my work, that I've been given the opportunities to do this work. Wow. It's Gabriel's legacy. It really is. And so I... I think about that a lot. I, I mean, to consider that I work with the legal team, who are my dear friends and my close colleagues, at the hospital where my son died because of a series of errors, you can't really make that stuff up. It's pretty profound. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, frankly, I think every hospital could have a role like mine. Every hospital has a patient or a family member who's experienced something really tragic and who who could help other patients. Leilani Schweitzer is the Assistant Vice President of Communication and Resolution at Stanford Hospital. You can see her entire talk at ted.npr.org. Thanks for listening to our show on transparency this week. If you want to find out more about who is on it, go to ted.npr.org. And to see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkinpour, Janae West, Neva Grant, Rund Abdel Fattah, Casey Herman, and Rachel Faulkner, with help from Daniel Shukin. Our intern is Benjamin Klempe. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. NPR.